0: Good morning. morning. Again, we're just we're thrilled to have you with us this morning here at LifeQuest, and uh, as uh, as I said earlier, we've got the our series is called I Value, and we're going through the the four cardinal doctrines of the assemblies. Just a couple of quick things that we didn't mention in the announcements. Uh, if you're interested in being a member of LifeQuest Community Church, next Sunday is our next membership class, and it'll be immediately after the morning service, and so if you're interested in being a member, um, please, uh, think about coming, attending that class. Lunch is free, and, uh, we'll get together for, yeah, I I don't know if I want to be a member, but I'm all for lunch. I'm all for lunch. Um. But our membership classes runs about an hour and a half or so. We try to make membership uh, not a, a. Some churches make membership a 12-week long process, and you have to be able to prove that you can walk on coals and do all kinds of things to validate your existence and membership in our church. We we don't do snake biting, um, but we feel that being a member of a church shouldn't be any harder than coming into the kingdom of God. And asking Christ to forgive you of your sins, its not a hard thing to do. And so we don't make membership this long, exhaustive process. We get together. We meet for lunch. We have uh, something called a spiritual formation plan, which may seem long and arduous and feel like walking on coals. Um, But basically all it is is a couple of pages where it lays out a a plan for your spiritual growth over the course of the next year. And so it says, this is where I am now. And this is where I want to be in a month. Spiritually, in my inward disciplines and in my outward disciplines, this is where I want to be in six months. This is where I want to be in a year, and and that's all we ask. Um, and we'll explain you and, and walk it all through uh, at the the membership class next Sunday after lunch or after church. So um, stick around next Sunday. Lunch is free, and uh, we'll help you understand what it means to be a member at LifeQuest Community Church. Tagging on to that on Saturday, not Saturday, on Sunday, February tenth. Um, is our annual church business meeting, which everyone is welcome to. We'll operate it similar to the way we did Thanksgiving, where we had church, and then we had lunch right afterwards, and then we'll have our annual business meeting. And everyone is welcome to attend. Um, You don't have to be a member to, to participate in the business meeting, but on things that come to voting issues, you can't vote unless you're a member. That's pretty much what's going on. And then the Bryans are uh, missionaries to Nicaragua. If you are um, interested in supporting them financially, there is a team that's going down in three weeks that if you'd like to contribute financially, they'll take it with them um, and make sure that it gets into their account. Uh, when, When groups send money to us and we send it on to the Bryans, the way the banks have to facilitate it, there's a processing fee that takes a chunk of it out. But if you want it to go, all of it to go, um, the Seaburgs are going to be going down in a couple of weeks, and this would be a blessing to the Bryans, if you're able to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place this morning. We thank you for the spirit of worship. Lord, we ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds and our choices this morning in Jesus' name amen amen Um, i've got a video that i think we want to play first
1: when i run it's actually like being locked into my own little world for a while and i find myself thinking quite a bit about life about god you know the big questions What's this race of life all about anyway? Where am I really going? And what about this runner's heart of mine? What if it stops beating? I mean, it will sometime. What then? And will I have regrets? Will I be happy with the race I chose to run? You know, some things I just wish I could do over again like this 5K race I entered a while back. Should have been easy, but about a half mile from the finish line, I got so dehydrated and overheated, I had to quit. And I kicked myself the rest of the day, but the race was over and there were no second chances. But are there ever really any second chances in life? Surprisingly, the answer is yes. The Bible calls it salvation. Salvation is God's great second chance for every one of us. You see, all of us have stumbled and come short in the race of life in some way. The Bible calls it sin. And our failures and the decisions we made to go it on our own, independent of God, get us going down the wrong track and trip us up. But here's where God's second chance comes in. In fact, the Bible tells us to imagine a stadium filled with cheering fans. There are all of the people who have found God's second chance and they finished their run on earth. They're like the many people that I've met and perhaps you have as well whose lives were recharged and redirected by this thing we call salvation. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way to us. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and those are the cheering fans, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But the next verse, that's the really important one. For it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, he's the center of salvation. Destination, that's what it's all about. In fact, in this race of life, Our destination is not so much an accomplishment or even a place, it's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the finish line as well as the one who gives us the breath it takes to get us there. It's Jesus who ran through the wall of shame and pain at the cross in order to die in our place and through his shed blood to wash our imperfect record clean. He's the only one who offers us the free gift of forgiveness and invites us to start all over again. You see, that's really what salvation is all about, a new you. Do you realize how hard it is to get a new you all by yourself? So what about you? Where are you in this run? And where is it all going to end? You know, someday this runner's heart of mine is going to stop beating and and so is yours. And the question is, what then? And what's going to be at the destination? A lot of things that don't really matter in life. Or maybe the question is better, who will be at the destination? It can be Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died on the cross to take all of our sin, all of the guilt of our wrong choices and wrong directions in life. So I encourage you to say no to your sin and no to the... Track you've been running in life and say yes to Christ's forgiveness, yes to Christ's way in your life. And if you make that decision, I encourage you to tell a Christian friend or a pastor about it, who can help you in this run. And I know that if you do make that decision, you will never regret starting this run towards Christ.
0: This morning we're talking about salvation, and uh, last week when we talked about the second coming and the rapture, we had little packets of morning glory seeds, just as a, a token to remind you that this is not all that there is, that, that where we are now is nothing in comparison to what will be, is waiting for us when he returns. And uh, so there's, there's morning glory packets over there, if you didn't grab one last week, Grab one, uh, just as a reminder. It's got a little sticker with a verse on it. Uh, this week with salvation, I thought that it might be kind of appropriate that our, our reminder would be a, a medal, the 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 just that that it's not just about how we run this race, but it's the, our destination, and the destination isn't a place; it's a person, it's Jesus Christ, and and we can be confident that. W- that when we get there, that he'll be there waiting for us and that he's with us along the way. And and so this morning, I want to talk to you about something that um, is is the only way that we can have salvation, and that's repentance. Uh, If you've got your Bibles or you can look up on the screen, I want to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things that you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. And anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Repentance. Now, if there's one kind of prayer that I think for us that we need to get right, it's the prayer of repentance. Um, you know, growing up at at First Assembly as a kid, my understanding of repentance was that um, at night before I went to bed, I would pray a prayer and rattle off all the things that I had done wrong that day, trying to remember as many things that I had done wrong. Um and repentance was something that happened at places like youth convention that there was a big event and there were thousands of kids and the the speaker would give an invitation and and I would go forward and repentance involved crying and feeling bad and and not that any of those things are are wrong but I began to think that repentance only happened at the altar at church over on the right hand side just behind Ida's organ that that you know that spot where you know my tears stained the carpet that's where you went for repentance um and repentance was really only you know if i if i did something wrong and and then i i repented of it but i didn't cry i didn't really repent because repentance means that you feel bad and you cry and you're at the altar behind Ida's organ and, and it's when you really, really mess up. That's when you need repentance. But over the years, I've learned that repentance is a whole lot more than that. Um, it's a whole lot more than just saying that you're sorry. Repentance is a whole lot more than just feeling bad or or feeling scared, you know. Last week, Pastor Dave talked about the the second coming, the rapture, and and I shared at the end of the message how uh, you know I was scared to death of being left behind, and and you know the the whole idea of of not being ready terrified me. My my parents. Had no idea. My brother—I was ten when they showed *Thief in the Night* at First Assembly when I was a kid. My brother was five, and it's a pretty graphic movie, especially for 1980 uh, then, and and obviously in a church, and especially for a five-year-old. And so the summer came and went, and and I I went up to the altar and I cried right on the by the platform right behind Ida's organ a lot, really hard, and and I was good. Um, and, but then still, you know, this ever present fear of, oh my goodness, I don't want to do something stupid and then forget to ask for forgiveness and then get left behind. What we didn't know was that my poor brother, Jay, the, the, some of the things that, that we believe are going to happen in the end times is that there's going to be someone who's going to rise to power and he's going to create this one world government system. And for you to participate In that one world government system, you will have to receive some kind of a mark, whether that is an actual physical branded mark. the, The scriptures talk about it being a mark on the back of your hand or on your forehead. I can't imagine people willingly letting themselves be stamped on their forehead, although you may not be willing. You may not have a choice. It's either here or here and some people think it's a microchip. Some people think it's an ocular retinal scan that you re- register for, that, that John the Revelator had no idea of what those things would be. But it's some kind of a mark that without that mark, you won't be able to buy or sell. You won't be able to get into Sam's Club or the grocery store or the mall or pay your bills if you don't have this system, if you're not in the system. And so we go to um, Fantasy Island, in in the buffalo niagara falls area and when we go into the park they're stamping our hands with those ultraviolet glow-in-the-dark stamps so that you can re-enter the park and my poor little five-year-old brother is screaming bloody murder you can't take the mark if you take the mark that's it it's all over they're gonna chop off our heads And these people are looking at us and they're like, what have you done to this poor five-year-old boy? Repentance is more than feeling bad for what you did. It's more than crying at an altar. It's even more than just praying a prayer. True repentance requires a couple of things. It requires both a sin awakening and a grace awakening. It means that where the Holy Spirit is going to help you to see who you really are, and then the Holy Spirit helps you to see and remember the work and the person of Jesus Christ. That when we know who he is and what he did in the light of who he is, then we respond and we shift our hope and our trust and our love fully and solely to Jesus. Here's a shorter version. True repentance involves a heart awakening to your need for Jesus, and it's also a heart response to the person and work of Jesus. Do you catch the difference between the two? It's an awakening to our need for Him, and then a response towards Him. And and here's the thing: I think that I'm still I'm still prone to getting it wrong. I'm still prone to getting repentance wrong. And, and when we get it wrong, we usually get it wrong in, in one of two ways. And, and I want to look at those two ways. Um, and maybe sometimes we get it wrong in both. But we get repentance wrong in depth. And we get repentance wrong in direction. So let's talk about depth. Sometimes when I think about repentance for me, I think I, I don't repent deep enough, and, and here 's what I mean by that when when we lie or we cheat or we steal or we get angry, our typical re- response to repentance is that we will focus on the behavior problem, and so I get mad, I blow up at my kids or I blow up at Terry, and my initial response is i 'm sorry.' that I behaved that way. I'm sorry that I lost my temper and I won't do it again. Promise. But when we just focus on what we did, it's like a doctor only treating the symptoms and not actually getting to the real disease that causes the symptoms. And so it's, it's like this. And and so it's so often, it's just so obvious But we don't want to focus on why we did what we did. Because it's easier to just focus on what we did and say, I'm sorry, and feel really bad and cry crocodile tears. But we need to ask God to help us identify what is beneath why you did what you did. What caused you to do it? Not the behavior. Because simply trying to correct wrong behavior without first dealing with wrong belief is exhausting. We have a six-year-old boy in our house. And trying to get him to do things that we, we need him to do, like pick up your socks or the dog will eat them, put your clothes on, it's time to get ready for church. Go get dressed. <coughs> yes, sir. Goes into his bedroom. And then you hear, And you open the door, and he's still in there naked. What have you been doing all this time? This is this morning, by the way. <laughs> I need you to get dressed. Yes, sir. Exactly. It's exhausting trying to correct behavior if you don't first correct belief. I know you do, (laughs) but sometimes my son doesn't. We need to ask God to help us identify the why beneath the what. Um, Because, again, it's exhausting. There's a a video clip that I want to show you that I think is... A great illustration of this. Uh, Dr. Switzer?
1: Uh, yes, C- come in. I'm just, just washing my hands.
0: Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, being very
0: yes. So I, I'll do finger puppets. All right, stop it. Just go to the next slide. Um, so in this video is Bob Newhart, who is hysterical and amazing. And he is a psychiatrist, and he's in his office. And this woman comes into the office, and she, um, she has problems. Um, and her problem is that she's terrified of being buried alive in a box, And that's her terrifying fear. And so Bob Newhart says, well, talk to me about that. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? And she says, well, I'm I'm terrified of being buried alive in a box. And so, you know, anything that's box-like, like like tunnels or elevators or houses, whenever I'm in them, I'm, like, terrified of being buried alive in a box. And and so – Bob Newhart says, so, so basically you're saying you're claustrophobic. And she goes, well, no, it's more than being claustrophobic. I'm terrified of being buried alive in a box. And, and he says, all right, well, here's how I charge. I charge $5 for the first five minutes. And then after that, I don't charge anything. And she's like, really, this is a great deal. And how does that work? She goes, well, don't worry about it. He goes, you typically, I don't even get past the first five minutes. So let's just, we'll see how this goes. And, and so he says, all right, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to think about and remember these two words. And she goes, do you, do you want me to write them down? Do you want me to get a, a pen and paper so I can write these two words down? And he goes, well, if, if you'd like to do that, but it's, it's two words. So typically people can remember two words. And he leans forward across the desk and he says, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And she's like, what you want me to just, yes, stop it. It's ridiculous. You're not going to be buried alive in a box. Stop it. And so she's like, um, okay, but, but you know, when I was a kid, no, 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 no. we're not talking about when you were a kid. Just stop it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, is there anything else about being buried alive in a box? Well, no, but I. Well, what else do you have? And so she goes on to these other things. And so then she begins to say that she is also afraid of this or that. And he was just like, stop it. That's ridiculous. Just stop it. And so they go on this whole thing. And then finally at the end, she's, she's still struggling with all the things that she's afraid of. And he says to her, kids, okay, I have 10 words for you this time. She goes, should I write these down? Yes, yeah, you should write these down. And so he says, okay, here's what I want you to understand. If you can't get a grip with all of these things that are ridiculous and you shouldn't feel this way. And, and oh, and one of the things, he wa- he's washing his hands when she first comes onto the scene. And so she, one of her things that she's afraid of is she says, well, I, I'm, a, I'm concerned because I'm always feeling like I have to wash my hands all the time. He goes, oh, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I do that all the time. But he says, here are your ten words. Are you ready? For all of these things that you just really can't get free of and you're just struggling with, here are your ten words. Stop it or I'm going to bury you alive in a box. <laughs> Your five minutes are up. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. (laughs) We're powerless to change our behavior until we address our wrong thinking and our wrong belief. Um, And and really, here's the thing that, that, that kind of can kick this whole thing even further out of whack because we can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Can't we? So there can even be sin underneath our good actions. Look at what he says in verse 2. You don't have to put it back up there. Um, But in verse 2 of of Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them to be false. You have persevered. You have endured hardship for my name and you haven't grown weary. But yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. All of our right morals, all of our solid theology, all of our determined living are worth nothing if we do them for the wrong reason. If our motivation is wrong, they're worth nothing. They had done all the right things, good things, but they had forsaken their first love. And the church in Ephesus, they had the what right, but it was the why. So the question, the key question for us in repentance is never what did I do, but why did I do it? We commit sins because at that exact moment that we commit sin... Something or someone has become more central to our existence, more significant to our sense of self and and worth than, than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so simply put, when we choose to sin, we are saying that we are taking something else and saying, I'm going to trust this more than I'm going to trust him. The Bible calls that idolatry. Because something or someone else has our heart's affection in that moment. And we're looking to that thing to validate us, to justify our existence. And we're looking for that something or that someone else to be our functional savior. We're asking that thing to meet the needs that we have. That something or that someone is an idol. And here's why we do it. We believed a lie. We believed a lie that something or someone will bring us or give us what only God can give us. We've believed the lie that, that the, the Satan that the serpent has been telling since the garden. Did God really say? That idea that you know God's holding out on you. And if you trust him and if you live for him, you'll miss out. And the things that you want, the things that you think are so important, God's holding out on you. And we're believing a lie about the very nature of God. Let me give you a personal example. For much of my life, and probably even still today, um, I struggle with being a poor loser. My kids throw a snowball at me. Retribution. (laughs) Snowman head comes flying across the yard. When Jill steals all my sheep and settlers of Catan, she is a rustler. And so when I lose at board games, I make excuses, right? That the cards were stacked against me. Um, But I I used to really lose my temper. It got to a place where I just wouldn't play games. Because if I knew that I wasn't going to win, why would I play? It's a sad way to live your life. No one wants to play with you. And so my parents and my friends or, or my wife, they would tell me, you know, Rob, you need to grow up and stop being angry. You know, Christians don't act that way. Christians don't, don't behave that way. And, and I, I obviously, I couldn't disagree. I was throwing a tantrum like a six-year-old naked boy not wanting to put his clothes on. <laughs> I want to win. But when I was confronted with that truth, there was three possible things that I could do and, and did, and sometimes all three First one is that when I was confronted with, Rob, you're being an idiot, I would get angry. I would get even angrier than I was. Or secondly, I would feel condemned and guilty about my inability to lose well, and I would just be like, oh, you're right. I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. Why can't I get this right? And I would just self-loathing would just pour it over my head. Or I would say that I was determined that, that this time I'm going to get it right. I'm not going to let it happen again. But it would happen again. And the reason it happens again and again and again is because guilt and determination and trying hard can't change your heart what I need to realize and what I needed to realize as a kid and what I still need to realize today is that beneath my behavior there's an idolatry issue. That somewhere along the way I began to believe the lie that I needed to be a winner and to be successful if I was going to be a valuable person. And that desire to win permeated and and permeates every aspect of my life. Whether it's being a great neighbor whether it's being a great pastor whether it's being a great dad convinced that that being a success and being seen as a success can become an idol in my life and in my heart when you have an idol an idol is something that you make sacrifices to or for right uh, and, and we don 't functionally have little uh, little statues in our homes that represent deities or or false gods that we then bring offerings to uh, The boys and I went to the Memorial Art Gallery yesterday, and we were walking through this African exhibit and they were showing all these different idols that they would they were idols for good weather and idols for this and that, and they would bring offerings to these idols. But a an idol is something that we make sacrifices for and center our lives around. And so idols could be good things. Idols could be sports. Idols could be success. Idols could be our appearance. Idols could be not just winning at games, but it could be wanting to win arguments wanting to win in traffic, wanting to win at school or at work or in, in music or, or, or ministry. And I would continually just beat myself up and say, stop it! But until I began to realize that there was an idol that I needed to repent of worshiping, I was never able to to get freedom from that. And it's something that I constantly have to struggle with to say, God, I don't want this in my life. I repent of of accepting the lie that this idol brings to my life. So the question is, what are the idols in your life that you need to repent of this morning? Because there can be the idol of pleasing people beneath your sin. There can be the idol of popularity. There could be the idol of success, the idol of image, the idol of ministry, the idol of always being right, um, always being smart or always doing the right thing, the idol for, uh, of always knowing that you've provided and, and finances can become your idol. And those idols can lead us to so many sinful behaviors that we swore we'd never do. So let me push on this a little bit more because it it goes deeper even than just um, idolatry because beneath the idolatry for us is really a lack of belief in the gospel. Because if we believe that we are sinners, saved by grace, that we're sinful beyond belief, but loved beyond hope, then we won't need to look for other things for our approval or for our acceptance. When we center our lives around Christ, living with him as our goal. True repentance is this. It's always about repenting of unbelief. When we repent, it's not, Lord, I repent of the bad things that I did. It's repenting of the unbelief that I believed the lie that led me to do those sinful things. When we sin, we forget the gospel. And so repentance, even when you look at the language of repentance in the passage in, in Revelation chapter 2, the language of repentance involves the words like remember, remember and it involves the word return so when i struggle with my idol of winning i have to to bring that idol of success and and perception and i need to take it to the cross and i need to say god please forgive me i repent of believing the lie that that success and winning brings value to who i am Rather than recognizing that you are who brings me my value and my worth and my purpose. What Jesus Christ accomplished for me is everything. And I don't have to serve a God of accomplishment anymore, I don't have to serve a God of success. Jesus hung upon a cross as a loser to ultimately triumph. He ultimately triumphed through losing so that I wouldn't need to pursue winning at any cost. Think about that. So maybe you're here this morning and you have an idol of beauty. Remember that Jesus gave up the beauty of heaven and became ugly on a cross so that he could have you. That's beautiful. Maybe you have an idol, a family. Jesus was separated from his father. The father willingly crushed the son so that they could save you. Now, I'm not saying that you know one of our core values is putting family first, but we can, we can put family even in front of God. Think about a sinful behavior in your life that always seems to have a hold on you. Lying, cheating, gossiping, unforgiveness, whatever that is. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. Now I want you to think of why. Why do you do that? We get it. Yes, we're sinners and that's why. But what is the idol beneath that sin, beneath that behavior, This morning, I want to encourage you, bring those idols to the cross. There's a quote by a pretty smart guy. He said, It's one thing to know that Jesus loves you, but it's another thing to have a sense on the heart of that love so powerful that it enables you to be free from the need of others' approval and your need for money, your need for this or that. Idols are always things that promise you what only Jesus can give you. But what only Jesus can give you must, to some degree, be experienced in your heart's affections before it will replace your idols. Because idols will become your master. And idols where, where Christ says, look, I died to have you. Idols will ask you to die to have them. Think about this, if, you're, if your idol is your appearance and, and you, you have to be a certain weight to feel beautiful, you will starve yourself until you get to that weight. You will basically try to starve your body to death so that you can have beauty. Or maybe your idol is work and, and your significance and your purpose and your meaning comes from work and so you will work yourself to death so that you can have that thing or or maybe it's worry. Worry can be an idol and you will freak yourself out and worry yourself to death to have that. First thing that we mess up is direction. Second thing and not nearly as long as depth is, is direction. We repent in the wrong direction. Now, I, I want to make sure that we're crystal clear on this because when, when we understand the meaning of the word repentance, it means doing a 180-degree turn from that thing that you're doing. But I think where we mess up in our direction is that, and you've probably seen, I know I, Jamie's done the illustration where he says, I'm going in this direction. Is taking a 180 degree turn and now I'm going to walk away from sin, wrongful thinking. And so now I'm going to walk towards good behavior, thinking properly, doing other things. That's repentance. And that's wrong. Because it goes back to stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. You don't repent from your sin and then work harder so that you can be better. It doesn't work. When we turn the 180 degrees, it's not 100 from, from lying, now I'm going to be honest. I turn from lying to Jesus. I turn from lust, not to purity and working hard and beating myself up, but I turn from lust to Jesus. You catch the difference in direction? We, we say this all the time to our kids. And and to people that we share the gospel with, that you can't earn your way into heaven. You can't work hard enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't be good enough. Ever. We turn from those things that we are lost in, that have got us trapped, that we have allowed to become idols in our lives, and we turn our direction, not to more work, but to Christ. Not from meanness to kindness or lying to honesty or laziness to hard work, but from whatever that idol holds at the, the the center of that lie that we've embraced is the truth in our heart, from that lie to Jesus. I think for us, um repentance needs to do a few things and, and then we'll close. Five thoughts on uh, repenting in the right direction. First is this. Repentance should always set our eyes and focus back on Jesus and should not be some sort of self-loathing or exercise in self-salvation where the focus goes right back to us. Second thing, repentance is not about shame and making ourselves feel ashamed as if that makes it all right. Right? Crying for hours behind the organ where Ida sits at First Assembly doesn't change anything. Repentance is returning to Jesus and remembering that he died for this sin. Third thing, repentance is repentance that is not Jesus focused gives attention and worship in the delay to you. When I turn and I don't repent and turn 180 degrees to him, and I return in 180 degrees to now I'm going to do better, it means I am in control. I'm the one that's doing the work. I'm the one that's earning my salvation. Number four, repentance is not turning in any way at all to myself. It is not focusing on me. Psalm 51 talks about that there is joy when we repent. Repentance results in joy. It restores me to joy. You know, for us, a lot of times as Christians, we feel like we, we live like we have a lot to personally atone for, that, that we have to make it right. And that's a noble thought, but it's exhausting And it's powerless. Sin, obviously, is worse than we think because you can't atone for it. You can't work hard enough to get free of even one. And I want you to hear this. You have nothing to atone for. Jesus Christ atoned for our sins on the cross. He paid the price. And it's paid in full. It's paid. It's provided for us at the cross. So when you're struggling with something and you need to repent, stop trying to atone for yourself and just be grateful for the fact that you don't have to. And accept what he's done for you. True repentance involves a heart awakening to your need for Jesus and a heart response. To the work and person of who he is every single day. 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to grasp the reality of what salvation means for us. Father, if we've got idols in our lives that we have pulled in and placed in our hearts in place of you, help us to identify them. Help us to to get rid of them and not work harder, not think harder, not do harder. But Lord, we would turn 180 degrees from those lies that cause us to do the stupid things that we do to you. To a personal relationship with you every single day. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. Help us this week to identify those idols and get rid of them in Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you paid it all.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Um, This afternoon or tomorrow, I'm going to send out an email with a a link um, to a really amazing resource. So if you don't normally check your email, check your email like tonight or tomorrow. Um, just, an, uh, just a really great resource by Timothy Keller on how to identify idols in your life and then how to remove those idols from your life. Just two pages. Um, and it'll, I'll email it as a PDF and you can print it out or put it on your electronic device or whatever. Awesome, awesome resource. Take some time just to sit down and read through it and then pray through it and say, God, identify the idols in my life that are keeping me from you. Pray you have a blessed week. Um, Like we try to remember to say as often as possible, be careful what you watch. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you talk about. Um, Blessings. Have a great week.